I'm back in plenary session, real life edition. I'm here at the San Francisco VA, and I'm joined by Dr. Gerald Sue. Dr. Sue is an MD, PhD. He's a practicing hematologist oncologist. He has a specialty in malignant heme, and he is the program director of the University of California San Francisco Hemonc Fellowship Program, one of the premier Hemonc fellowships in the in the country, perhaps even the world. Dr. Sue, thanks so much for for taking the time. You're welcome. Happy to be here. It's really a pleasure to get to talk to you in person, and uh, listeners, I hope they appreciate. But for me, I really get a kick out of how clear this audio is, and, uh, and I hope you'll get a kick out of the conversation. So let me tell you how this all got started. I've always been meaning to talk to you, Gerald. I mean, I've been meaning to sit down with you and pick your brain about, um, about fellowship. But recently, I was looking through the podcast, and I heard you talk to another podcast about what you think about in fellowship. It was short and sweet. It's about 10 to 15 minutes. And then I texted you to say, it left me wanting more. And that's what led to this conversation. I was just wanting more, more, Gerald. Yeah, well, I'm thrilled that you heard that. And hopefully other people heard it too. Uh, It was a nice reflection on uh, this process that we're going through right now, which is uh, recruiting uh, future fellows to our program. And we're in the thick of things. We were just telling, uh, Gerald was just telling me that uh, we have two interview days left. Then we'll rank, the applicants will rank. And then by uh, December, our connections will be made. Let me first start by asking you, and you know, I know a little bit of this, but I don't think I've ever had a chance to talk to you about this. Your background, you're an MD, PhD, you have a background in laboratory science, uh, now you do more clinical medicine, now you do program directing. You mind telling listeners a little bit about your career arc and, and what brought you to where you are today? Sure. Uh, so like so many of us, I think what appealed to me about our field is the science. Uh, and so this uh, manifested uh, in uh, undergrad and then again, again in uh, medical school as wanting to pursue a PhD. Um, and my area of interest was really more basic and fundamental. And so I did a PhD in structural biology at Duke. Um, and it was really because I loved the deliverables. Uh, I loved the idea of forming these crystals that proteins form crystals naturally. Um, and we had a system in the lab where you could uh, look at uh, replication within the crystal uh, in DNA. And so capturing these pictures was just so appealing. Um, and then producing these gorgeous figures uh, was, uh, was, uh, was a luxury. Um, and certainly the kind of work that I enjoyed doing day in and day out. Um, and so when it came time to choosing a profession, uh, specifically a specialty, I felt like uh, my scientific interests uh, aligned best with oncology. Um, and what I didn't appreciate was how much I would enjoy the work clinically. And so uh, I ended up doing residency and then uh, fellowship and thinking that I was going to uh, hopefully pursue a career as a lab-based physician scientist. And then realizing along the way um, that um, uh, the requirements uh, uh continue to grow, um, meaning like the, uh, the, um, uh, the investment that you need to put in to become a successful lab-based physician scientist might not have been compatible with uh, my other needs uh, with the rest of my life. Um, so I often talk about how fellowship is this incredibly vulnerable period of time, and that comes largely from a personal place. Uh, I ended up uh, meeting and getting married uh, to my wife and having a child all within fellowship. Um, And during the course of fellowship, uh, events transpired that were somewhat traumatic. um, And I ended up uh, realizing um, that you have to be so selective about how you spend your time. Um, And I now had this family, uh, and uh, it was so important to me to prioritize that over all else. Um, And so I came to uh, reflect on what I was good at and um, how I I would want to spend my time in the future. And I thought, uh, maybe I'm not uh, as gifted in the ways of uh, thinking about science, writing about science, doing all the grants uh, and the um, promotion that you need to do to become a successful lab-based scientist. and have the time that I needed to fulfill uh, myself and the rest of my life. Um, So I transitioned over the course of my year as a chief resident um, and thought uh, really about where I wanted to live and how I wanted to spend my time. And so I came to the Bay Area because this is where my family is, this is where my wife's family is. Um, 
And uh, it didn't matter to me what kind of job I ended up taking, really. I just really wanted to be in the Bay Area. And so fortunately found a home here at UCSF uh, and the VA, which um, really was my dream job, uh, to be in a place that um, is uh, intellectually vibrant, uh, where I could do clinical care, where I could, where I could do education. Um, it was uh, the meeting of all worlds. Uh, and so I haven't looked back since. Um, and so that's my perspective. That's what I bring uh, when I uh, talk to fellows who are navigating those same transitions, uh, figuring out uh, how they're going to become the best versions of themselves in the future. And hopefully each of them will acknowledge uh, the ways in which their priorities and interests change during this really vulnerable period of time. Oh, that's fascinating. And uh, it's really it's really great to hear you 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 put it that way. And I think I think that's one of the reasons why the trainees, the fellows in particular, but all the trainees really admire you is because I think you're very open and empathetic to the fact that life isn't always a single highway. And sometimes it has detours and, and, and roads that come off here. But sometimes you get back on the highway. Sometimes you don't. You know, it's complicated. I wonder if you might remind me, where did you do your fellowship? I did my fellowship here. You did your fellowship here. Yeah. I see. And then you just stayed on staff? No. So yeah. I ended up uh, doing my three years of fellowship. I single boarded in medical oncology, um, but had already committed to going back to Brigham and Women's uh, for a year as a chief resident. I see. That's um, what it was. Okay. So that was a reset for me. I see. So you finished Hemong Fellowship, then you did. And, and listeners may forget, but this was once very common. University of Chicago did it this way. Brigham did it this way, where they took their resident, fellowship trained him, and then brought him back to be chief. That's less common these days, right? That's right. Yeah, I think the Brigham still does it that way, but oh, now it's just a mix of years. I see. And that was what took you out there. And then you came back here to be on the staff. And, yeah. you know, you put it well that it's it's the, the dream job. And I think, um, you know, maybe in the course of this conversation, we'll get into it. I also, you know, you know I attend over here um, at the VA. And I think it is the dream job because it's academic, but all the people who work here at this VA are brilliant. I mean, in every division from, you know, Eric yeah, in, uh, you know, geriatrics to, I mean, every division you can think of, there's brilliant people here, closely affiliated with UCSF, but has all the charm of a VA and uh, the patient population of a VA, which makes you feel really gratified, I think. Now, I wonder if you might tell people about how you fell into the program director role that um, relatively a little bit more recent. Yeah. Uh, so it was really because an, uh, Emily Bergsland, who was a program director, decided to take on a role within the cancer center. Uh, so at that time, uh, I was uh, just about to become an associate professor. Uh, so it was about time to um, potentially think about uh, changing paths and uh, certainly puts you in a position to be able to be a program director. I think that was one of the requirements that you be associate level. Um, and so it was just right timing. Um, and uh, she just fortunately left the position in such great shape that I had very little to do. Did you always want to be a program director someday? Was it on your horizon? No, not really. I think it was just far more appealing to me um, to work with uh, fellows uh, than uh, other trainees. Not that I don't enjoy working of with course. other trainees, but I, I think the uh, fellowship period of time is, uh, is the one that I think I uh, gravitate to the most. No, I completely understand. And as a, as a lecturer who lectures at the different levels, it's always the fellows lecture, no offense to the other levels, but that I enjoy the most. And the reason is I feel like I can tell them the things that are right where my mind is and they'll get it because they know all the stuff that you need to know to kind of talk about sort of technical issues in oncology. Back to your program director. What was it about the job that drew you in? Was it the, your chief, obviously, so you must be good at education. And I know you to be good at education. So it goes the education part. Is it the, the life coach mentor part of, I mean, cause you are a coach too. I think people forget you're a coach. You coach these, these fellows through uh, all sorts of decisions. Is it the administrative side? And you know, I, well, maybe, I don't know. Um, is it, um, yeah, so what is it about the position that drew you in? So it was the one-on-one uh, -on -one fellow interactions that was uh, what drew me in. Uh, I think it was the life coaching aspect. Uh, that's something that my wife jokes about a lot. Uh, she always has felt that that was something that I was interested in pursuing all along. Um, so that was 100% uh, what I thought this job was gonna be, uh, that it was fellow facing, that you were going to help people navigate uh, these uh, challenges and celebrate uh, the good things that happened in this period of time in their lives. Um, I also realized that I had been here, 
maybe five or six years at that time, um, and had cultivated long-term relationships with the faculty in our division. Um, and uh, I've, I sort of feel as though um, these were people that I grew with, uh, so several people that I look up to who I consider advisors and mentors uh, myself, uh, to me, I should say. Um, and then I also had uh, peers that were now faculty. And so I had this, um, uh, I guess I would say, this well of um, uh, gratitude um, and good relationships with uh, people within our division um, that I felt uh, I could further. Uh, so uh, the idea that you would get to work with people who you admire, uh, both at the fellow level and the faculty level, uh, was, uh, was certainly a draw too. The administrative side is not great. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they can't give you enough FTE for that. But you know, it's actually important what you're saying is to have good relationships with the faculty because to some degree you're, uh, you know, Netflix Indian matchmaker. You're a matchmaker of sorts and you need to always be thinking when the fellow's in your room, you know, are you going to pair well with, you know, Dr. So-and-so or Dr. So-and-so's lab here, you know, this person here. And uh, to that degree, institutional memory is important and knowing people is important. Yes, 100%. And I feel like in general, the interests of the faculty and the fellows are totally aligned. But there are certainly situations where that's not necessarily the case. And if you have a relationship with people outside of that uh, navigating a specific conflict, I feel like potentially you could resolve that better than you otherwise would. Those situations are, for instance, if the, the faculty member doesn't want to let the fellow move on to the next level or something like that? No? No, or it's maybe, uh, it could be interpersonal conflicts. It could be conflicts related to... Um, specific work documentation or maybe about taking certain calls um it might be um uh, that situation where uh somebody's trying to communicate that honest uh feedback that maybe um uh, the work product doesn't quite measure up and somehow you have to um bridge that um uh, that conversation for people um it could be what else? Um, I think scheduling is often a big one. Mm-hmm. Oh, these aren't easy. We'll come back to this. I'm very interested about the work product, and I'll tell you how I've tried to solve that the few times it's happened to me. But I want to start with, I mean, this theoretic, I'm imagining in my mind the student. And these days, not all students will know, but some medical students will know that they want to be a hemonk fellow someday. And I wonder if you might walk us through a little bit about, you know, what would you tell the hemonk or the hemonk bound medical student, third year student, fourth year student, what would you tell the resident? And what would you tell the applicant, you know, along that way? And I just want to start with one little anecdote. When I was in medical school, I was at the University of Chicago, and a good friend of mine wanted to do neurosurgery. And he decided that towards almost the tail end of the third year, he really liked it. And that's what he wanted to do. And he met with one of the senior faculty in neurosurgery, asking, you know, what advice do you have for me as somebody who's neurosurgery bound? You know, who should I work with? Who should I get letters from? And uh, this guy said, oh, oh, you, you want to do neurosurgery? What, what year student are you? He's like, I'm, a third, I'm just finishing my third year. He's like, oh, boy, third year. He's like, if you had come to me in first year, maybe before you, the summer before you joined, I'd be able to help you. But by third year, my friend, it's a, it's a little too late. <laughs> and, my, and I always thought that, you know, so ridiculous because, I mean, where does it end? He's like, you come to me as a kindergartner, first That's grader. Right. That's what stream. you got to start. Yeah. So, so what do you tell the student, the student there who... And not, you know, not all of them, though, but what, do you, what would you advise a student? Um, I think of two things. Uh, the first is um, always be refining your questions. Um, gravitate towards the things that are ask, uh, making you ask why about something. Um, I think cultivating that intellectual curiosity about any and all topics um, is, is important. Um, and I think... Um, Reflect on which of the questions that you're asking uh, might prompt you to pursue further exploration um, or might lead you to get lost in reading. Um, I think that kind of intellectual interest, um, finding something that, um, uh, that you can get lost in, uh, might uh, lead you to identify the right path for you in the future, uh, right subspecialty, uh, whatever it is. Um, so uh, think about those questions uh, that really uh, intrigue you. Uh, the second thing I'd say is focus on skills um, as opposed to 
content and topic. Um, I think uh, if you uh, approach um, uh, these questions with common skill sets that you can develop. Uh, hopefully, you've you've put together um, uh, 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 a toolbox that uh, you could then take to any other um, field. Uh, so uh, that would probably be the two things to focus on uh, at the medical student level. Um, stay in touch with the questions that most intrigue you, and also work on developing skills as opposed to. Um, putting together a CV that you think uh, would uh, impress somebody. You know, it's so well said. It's such a great advice that this idea to lose yourself in the literature, because it means, it means a couple of things. One, it means to really immerse yourself. But two, it means you can only lose yourself when you're really passionate about right. something. You know, if you're not that interested, you just can't lose yourself in that literature. Um, but when you lose yourself and you feel yourself being lost, like you look up and it's like, oh my God, an hour has passed and I've just been reading about this, you know you really were into it. Yeah. And so I think that's great advice, Gerald. Now, talk to me, let's say I'm the internal medicine resident and I wanna to go to UCSF. And believe me, there's a lot of people like this. Why? Because it's a great, obviously it's a great program. But also, I mean, I think, what is it about the program that's so good? Many great faculty and strong in many domains. You know, if you wanna come here and work with a hemonc doctor who runs a lab and is extremely successful, you can do that. You wanna do cellular therapy, you can do that. You wanna work with somebody who does immunotherapy, you can do that. You wanna work with somebody who does outcomes research and policy, you can do that. You wanna do geriatrics research, you can do that. And so you, you kind of got your pick of a lot of things and you get to live in the most beautiful city in America, despite what they say on the news, it is the most beautiful city. And you get to be in a culture, and this is the hardest thing I, I tell people about San Francisco, where there are other beautiful cities in the state that have nice weather. And then they say, you know, uh, would you ever move there? I said, this is a little thing about San Francisco, which is just you're always surrounded by people who you feel are motivated and ambitious and are trying to make it in whatever they're doing. And I don't always feel that in every other city. And so that's another thing I like about it. But I'm applying for the program and I want to be competitive. I guess you're going to ask me, why do you want to come to our program, not other programs? And what advice are you going to give me? You know, so how, how do you think about that? Uh, here I think about uh, communicating your vision. I think the thing that sets apart applicants is how successfully they've communicated that vision in the personal statement. Um, I tell pretty much everyone, so I don't think this is a secret, uh, that the part of the application that I go to first is actually the personal statement, which I feel as though people are conditioned to um, write in as safe a way as possible, that they're trying to make sure that there are no red flags in that personal statement. Right. That, um, they tend to sound potentially generic because they're not revealing a whole lot about themselves. And I think that's um, uh, a missed opportunity because I think that the personal statement is perhaps the place where you have free reign. Uh, you can really communicate anything you want. Um, and I think that uh, it adds flesh to the bones of what the rest of that application is, which is, you know, uh, a listing of the publications and the different experiences that you've had to date. So I think the, vis uh, the vision that uh, you can uh, communicate in that personal statement uh, should hopefully um, highlight the different skills you've developed to date, and more importantly, how you're going to use those skills and add on additional skills over the course of the fellowship. So what I want to see is what resources are you going to pull together to go from point A to point B? while here, you're here in fellowship. Um, the more um, delineated that path is gonna be, uh, the more I as a reader is gonna buy into that vision. Uh, and if I can buy into that vision, uh, then I can get excited about it too. Um, and certainly uh, see you as somebody who, who would thrive here and um, be at that next level uh, when it's time for you to uh, look at the next job. I guess this also means that you're reading these very carefully. You're reading all of them. Yeah. I read 100% of the personal statements um, more than once because we'll go through it and um, think about um, uh, who who to pair people with. Um, but I, I, I actually take the personal statement uh, far more seriously than, than other aspects of the application. Do you think the other program directors nationally are like you or you think you have a particular focus on this? I don't know. I... I think that everybody reads them. Um, you know, it's certainly something that people are investing a lot of time in, and um, it's uh, it's the thing that I think we're all looking for somebody to jump off the page. Right. And a publication isn't going to do that. Uh, uh, your training program isn't really going to do that. Uh, but I think um, 
the the place that you can really connect with the person is really in that personal statement. Am I not going to get an interview if I don't have perfect test scores, if I didn't go to one of those 10 premier programs, if I didn't publish a lot of papers? Do you have any sort of benchmarks that you just don't look below that cutoff? Nope. So you look at everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we look at everyone. Let me ask you about the personal statement. I think back about myself. I'm sure the personal statement I wrote is everything that you said not to do generic and you know trying not to stick out. Um, and if I think about it in retrospect, if I were really to write an honest personal statement, Gerald, I'll tell you what my personal statement would have been and you tell me how it would have fared. Because um, I don't think it would have fared well. And here's, here's what I'm thinking. I went to University of Chicago Medical School and before I went to medical school, like everyone who wanted to go to medical school, I did obligatory basic science laboratory work. I happened to work in organic chemistry synthesizing polymers, spent a lot of time thinking about orgo. I knew that even though some of the you know pathways were interesting to me, that kind of life was not interesting to me. I mean, I just didn't like the day in and day out of being alone in the bench, uh, you know, sometimes even in the hood, mixing, uh, you know, uh, potentially uh, uh, reactive compounds. It was really kind of, it was lonely, to be honest. And the thing about medicine that to this day that I really love the most is it's, it's the least lonely job in the world because you're always talking to people in your office. Um, so I did that on the way in. Then I went to University of Chicago. And in my mind, if you were gonna be in the academy and stayed in the academy, you had to be a physician scientist. And to me, and the, the models I had, and no, my family's in medicine, so the models I had were laboratory-based. So to be at the academics, University of Chicago, you have to run a lab. So I gave it, I think, one more try. I went into some cancer biology lab, and I think I was just swirling around cell cultures, and I, you know, lentiviral transfection and some stuff like that. And again, I knew it wasn't for me. And so by the time I went to residency, I was 100% sure I was gonna do private practice. And I was probably gonna live in Chicago because that's where I was from. And that's in part why I went to Northwestern, I think, because it was just a great place to teach you great clinical medicine. And their pipeline was the private practices of Chicago. Nobody had more pipeline than Northwestern did. Then somewhere along the way in my Hemonk Fellowship, I started working in this, the space that I'm in now, policy and drug approvals and stuff like that. And it was really just like a few random projects and, and I didn't know if it was going anywhere. So if I were to write an honest personal statement back then, I would have said this. I would have said, I want to do Hemonk. Why do I want to do Hemonk? I've had great experiences on Hemonk service, and there's one person in particular, two people in particular, who you know really inspired me. In terms of like life, I just don't know. I might do private practice Hemonk. I might try to work at FDA if I really this drug approval stuff takes off. I might try to cut it in the academy, but I've never seen anyone succeed in this space. And so my essay would be like, I'm confused. I'm a you know, 27 years old, 20, actually maybe 26 at the time, 26, I don't know. Um, how would that fare to write, like, I just don't know where I'll be, and it could be so widely divergent? Well, I think it depends on how you write it, too. Um, so I think if it captures the way in which you've reflected on this, the paths that you pursued that didn't feel right to you, um, the uh, uh, policy questions that whet your appetite, uh, that led you to pursue certain projects, um, and potentially want to explore more, um, then it might fare really quite well. I see. Um, I think personal statements are a point in time. And it really, uh, what, what you're trying to um, put in that statement, or what I'm trying to get from reading the statement, uh, is that somebody's done reflection, somebody has a lot of intellectual curiosity, regardless of what the questions are. Um, that uh, they're going to have that intellectually on intellectual honesty about their future path, um, and if those things are in place and they have some idea of what they hope to pursue, or at least um, uh, what uh, in the short term what resources they uh, they hope to develop um, or to make use of, um, then I think that uh, there's a there's a great path. I don't think. I have an expect. I don't think anybody has the expectation that um, we're producing a specific phenotype at the end of this. That if you've committed to being a certain type of physician scientist in that personal statement, we're going to hold you to it. Um, we recognize again that uh, people's interests and priorities are going to shift, um, and I think it's really about um, uh, adapting to your circumstances, adapting to those changes, um, and also. Uh, uh, staying true to yourself uh, to make sure that eventually, um, regardless of what you pursue, uh, you're going to end up 10, 15, 20, 30 years from now uh, in a uh, career uh, that feels sustainable to you where you've made an impact. 
And that's the best measure. You know, I, I think about the shift that's happened, because part of the reason is that maybe it was unthinkable to me because the year was, I don't know, 2007 or eight, I don't know, 2010 maybe. Um, and back then, you know, it would have been hard. To, I mean, it was a different time back then. I don't know if people would be so open-minded to get sort of an essay saying, like, I'm not totally sure. So, you know, we were always trained, like, you got to say something. Tell a story. It doesn't matter if the story is true. You got to tell a story. Um, but it's refreshing to hear that times have changed and, you know, people have changed and, and that you could tell something different. Here's one question I have for you. When I was training, the be-all, end-all was scores. I mean, there was so much pressure on step one, and it was like, you know, people would say that, you know, um, you have 250 reasons to go to orthopedic surgery, you know, because if you got a 250 or higher, you know, you're really competitive. And, you know, you have uh, 190 reasons why ENT's off the table, you know, like, I mean, people would put that kind of stock in. And obviously, I think it was misguided, and I've been a vocal critic of the step one, the content, the way they've scored it, the misuse of it, published many papers on this space. Um, and I think another issue is the potential for unintended discrimination as a use of this test. And I think there's been a broader recognition, particularly in California, to move away from standardized tests. And I think the UC system, like for undergraduate, they don't even require SAT anymore. Um, and I think that that's well motivated. In lieu of that, we're doing a lot of this other stuff where we're saying, what extracurriculars do you have? Or you know, how do you frame yourself in a personal statement? And recently someone told me that there are former, you know, fancy university people who are on the admissions committee who are selling the consulting service of i'll read your personal statement i'll tell you how to answer the question how do you bring divert dei to this campus i'll, t I'll coach you on it and then they read your first draft and then they say you know what the people on this committee they're not going to like to hear it that way they're going to frame it like this so they're getting coaching and so i guess my concern is and i'm curious how you think about this that as we move from rigid numerical values which we thought were um, a poor measure of somebody to these more softer um, uh, uh, formats in a hope that it would less it's less likely to incentivize people who come from affluence and people who are well-connected. I worry that we've actually made it easier that people who are affluent and well-connected can do well on these metrics because if you're, to be honest with you, as somebody who's worked in the university, you know, I know that if I proofread somebody's um, personal statement, I know what people are looking for more than, you know, my father who's not in medicine. And so, you know, so I guess, how do, how do you think about that? Yeah, as, you're t as you talk about this, I'm uh, thinking about this article that I read in The Atlantic a long time ago about the 1% and the 10%, and uh, that this, I guess they called it the game of life or whatever it is. Um, uh, we talk about the people who are in the top 1% having all the advantages, but the truth is it's really far more than that, probably top five, top 10% of people socioeconomically, and that they've figured it out somehow, that whatever game you throw out there, people are going to figure out a way um, uh, to uh, achieve disproportionate um, reward. Um, and so I think potentially it's inevitable that there's always going to be some coaching involved, um, and that maybe uh, if you have the wherewithal and the means that you're going to try and find a coach to get you through this process. In reality, I'm not sure that uh, people who are at the residency phase are going to pursue that as much as people who are in the high school space are. I see. Um, but even if you were to do that, even if you were to pre present the best possible picture of yourself, uh, we also have interviews at the end of this, um, which is somewhat different than I think uh, you've got um, certainly from high school to college and potentially even college to med school. There certainly is our interviews and I'm sure they also do matter. But um, I think uh, at the fellowship level, um, we're probably, we have a, um, a different rubric uh, by which we are uh, uh, assessing people uh, or considering people for fellowship. Um, so I think it's harder to game once you're in that interview situation. Uh, you, uh, you, you can get to that point, and then I think um, uh, there's no faking it at that point. I say, let's talk about the interviews. This is a great, mm -hmm. great segue. Uh, you're a pro at this podcasting business. Um, let's talk about the interviews. So, you know, I think um, one of the big differences is the pandemic has put us in the Zoom interview mode. And so one thing I've been very curious about is I've heard anecdotally, but I haven't checked the data myself, that in the Zoom interview has pluses and minuses. Obviously, one minus is that you know you don't get to see someone face to face and you don't pick up all the very subtle cues of communication that you might. 
Um, a plus is that, you know, we used to make people pay for this. And I think I remember, you know, in my medical school days, taking out like a little extra loan money to cover it. And then when I was a resident, you know, I wouldn't say it's a hardship, but it's certainly not pleasant when you're making X and spend 10% X traveling, you know, I mean, it's, you know, it's a 10th of your income perhaps for the year. Um, so Zoom, I think, makes that more democratic, more fair. But a countervailing thing that we didn't expect was I've seen that there's an explosion in applications because knowing that you don't have to fly all these places has led people to apply more aggressively. There's an increase in the number of interviews people are wanting to go on. And as a result, everyone who's doing unpaid work, like unpaid interviewing, is that's all gone up a little bit. Um, and sometimes people are interviewing at places that realistically that they just don't want to go or they're not, it's not, you know, that's not a place. Um, so, so that's one thing I want to probe you on. And then the next thing is, well, we could start with that, and then we can talk about the content of the interview and how you think about it. So I, we've certainly seen an increase in the numbers of applications. Um, we're interviewing a few more people this year than we otherwise would have, but that's more because of the ASH HFFTP. Um, we are seeing fewer cancellations for interviews. Uh, so it used to be people would just get sick of being a road warrior. Right. Um, and so I don't, uh, in the last three years, I think our cancellation numbers have really gone down. Um, we haven't seen a huge change in how far, quote, down we go on the list. Um, and so I think, um, I'm not sure if that's specific to us or specific to all programs, but in spite of the fact that we have more um, applicants, um, it, it ends up being about the same for us in terms of uh, overall numbers and process uh, once we get past the um, selection for interviews. Um, I think that... Uh, I certainly think that it's, uh, in, in my mind, been a great thing to, uh, to transition over to uh, virtual interviews uh, because I, I think we are seeing people who otherwise would not have considered our program, um, and I at least want to meet those people. So it may not be that uh, you're going to come to UCSF for fellowship, but our community is small enough that we're probably going to cross paths again. Even if you're just applying um, and reach out, um, maybe we don't uh, connect this time around, uh, but maybe in the future you're going to be looking for faculty positions or you're going to be looking for collaborations for work that you're going to be doing. And so uh, this as a first step in making those connections is really nice. Um, the other thing that I'm realizing uh, with the pandemic and the shift to virtual is that um, uh, we are now looking for projects and mentors and advisors that aren't necessarily at our institution. So by virtue of putting our faculty out there and interviewing people, maybe they're building connections and building a network that's gonna be useful to them in the future. All of the people that we're interviewing um, are going to land somewhere great, uh, or that's certainly my hope and expectation. Um, we don't have a monopoly on great people and great research and great projects and great clinical care. Um, I think that exists so many places. And I think that uh, the more you can build out your network, um, the uh, more potential there is for success in the future. Um, and so I think there's a win-win. I think it's great that our faculty are pot potentially connecting with uh, future fellows that might be other institutions. Maybe these fellows someday would think about coming back to UCSF for a faculty position. Um, and so uh, certainly more faculty burden interviewing, but I think there is a, uh, a benefit and uh, a potential connection. Yeah, that's a really good answer. Um, I remember in the years before Zoom had, had dominance, um, people taught, proposed different ideas like we could all meet in a convention center in Denver and do a round robin like speed dating. With I the think that's how they do in Canada. That's how they do it in Canada. I think yeah. so for residency. And it has some advantages because then they pay once and they spend a few days and uh, maybe there can be even consolidation in the interviews so they don't have to feel like they're saying the same thing over again. Um, I think you're absolutely right that uh, your point was really well taken. I hadn't thought about it before about the connections and, and I guess I should have thought about it because in like the group of people I do research with, I think 10 of them aren't even, you know, in certainly not in San Francisco, maybe not even in the country. You know, they're they're global people and we're doing research on Zoom. We have like, you know, try to have biweekly research meetings. And so you're right. A lot of opportunities can happen that didn't weren't impossible five years ago. Um, let's shift gears to now I'm in the program. Um, and I'm in the program. 
or actually maybe ask you one more thing about content of the interview. That's what I said sure. I was going to ask. Yeah. Uh, the content of the interview, I guess I'd say, uh, you know, what are you looking for in the content of the interview? Um, one of the things I hear from applicants recently is that it's difficult. Like they're just sitting there at a desk and they talk for 20 minutes and they're like 10 minute break. And then it's like quickly go to the bathroom and they sit back and boom, the lights back on and the ring lights in your face and you're talking. Um, what do you, what do you listen for? What do you look for? What are the kinds of questions you ask? without betraying any trade secrets. Uh-huh. Yeah, no trade secrets. Uh, it's not a secret uh, that we do standardized interviews. So uh, I think that's generally a, considered a best practice in other fields. Um, so if you're asking the same question of everybody, um, then um, theory makes for a fairer process. Um, and so that's what uh, half of our interviews are. Um, so the interview that I do is a standardized interview. Um, the way that these questions were developed uh, were to, um, we started with a process where we thought about uh, the prototypical, quote, best features of fellows, like what we hope uh, uh, hope uh, people who come into our program come with in terms of features and characteristics. Um, and uh, then we tried to develop questions that might uh, highlight uh, these qualities. Um, and so uh, th- thought, thought very carefully about what these standardized questions were going to be. Um, what we're looking for with these questions in general um, is uh, somebody um, who's uh, thoughtful and reflective, um, who's intellectually curious, who's um, uh, in it for the right reasons, uh, who's uh, motivated in a way to potentially drive things themselves intellectually. So the degree of ownership they've, they've had with the different projects they've pursued. Um, this is all very hard to get out of an interview, or a lot to get out of an interview. Um, and I think we've done a pretty good job uh, uh, asking questions that are gonna get and get at the heart of a lot of this. Um, so I think that probably answers without giving too much away. Sure. And then how <laughs> what do you we're de- asking what we're looking for? How do you decide among the many applicants who you are personally going to interview? Oh, like how we select. For how do you assign to them? To, yeah. Oh, I see. I interview everyone. You interview everyone. Yeah. Oh. Um, and then uh, uh, we have associate program directors um, who are tasked with an individual application, thinking about who that. Uh, candidates should interview with and they all interview their pool of people um so they're saying a, you know they're asking the same questions of everyone within their pool and then we meet at the end of this process wow yeah so i guess that's really nice that you interview everyone because one of the things i always wonder about is like the consistency of the interviewer should be held constant too now i wonder what your thoughts are on um uh some a, thought, a, a proposal that i've always been saying and i'm curious what you think uh and be free feel free, free feel free to shoot it down um, you know, I think above a certain level, it's almost impossible in my mind to differentiate among 20, you know, I can, I can certainly differentiate a little bit, like maybe by quartile, but beyond that, I feel like I'm powerless and the top 10 are all be- all wonderful. And if you randomly flip the order around, they're all wonderful. And so I sometimes wonder if maybe one of the ways we could solve this problem is just to use a modified lottery, you know, just have some set of cutoffs. And if you're above this, you know, we're just going to randomly generate our rank list. But, you know, people push back and say that that's not quite right. You know, um, what are your thoughts on this? So I I think we're a very selective program, but we're not so selective that we get everything that we want. Functionally, that's probably what's happening. Like there's an incredible amount of subjectivity and arbitrariness to this project process. Um, and what is functionally happening is that you're grouping maybe your top 10 top 20 people and it's somewhat a crapshoot who you end up getting um, but they're basically in these quintiles um, and no matter what order they're in um, you know it, it's uh, the way in which the match works is that the uh, the applicant themselves rank list takes priority uh, so I feel like they very much have the power to dictate where they end up um, and uh, however we end up um, ranking them um, uh, uh, is, is uh, like being a position 15 versus 16 isn't going to make a whole lot of difference. It's really them driving the process is what I'm trying to say. 
our program, like a number of the of the top residency programs, has a fast track kind of program where you can do residency in two years, and and we call it the molecular medicine program. We call it molecular medicine because to be eligible for this program, you you typically have to have an interest in bench science, and I think it's based on the principle that. It isn't easy to succeed as a bench scientist, and the more years you can stack up towards the end of your penult- your ultimate training, the better position you are to compete for a laboratory. Um, and 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 we have a number of candidates come through. And I guess one question I always have is, um, do we give preferential treatment to the molecular medicine people? Do we give preferential treatment in general to lab people across Hemonc? Um, every place I've ever been when you're talking about candidates, I mean, people like lab people. Um, is that is that something we're doing? Is it is it good that we're doing it? Is it a blind spot? You know, or are we not doing it at all? Yeah, I'm trying to navigate that. Um, certainly, questions that I've been wrestling with over time. Uh, I don't know really. I don't have great answers for you there. Um, I guess I would say that um, people who are applying within that program, in some ways, have a bit of a leg up because one of the things that we uh, are hoping to see. Um, is uh, an intellectual investment in a project, in something. And that's certainly easier to do if you've invested more time in it. So if you're an MD-PhD and uh, you've taken on a graduate project and there are many first author publications, it's more obvious it's that, that, that you've uh, done this type of work that is going to be important for you in an academic career in the future. And our mission is still very much like we want to produce leaders, thought leaders in whatever field they're going into. Um, and so I think naturally there is probably some advantage to having um, done an MD-PhD or spent a little bit of extra time in some other pursuit uh, during the course of medical school. Um, so I'm not sure if that natural advantage necessarily equates to a built-in advantage. Um, uh, these people probably this group of people probably would have been uh, identified as um, highly recruitable to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wish that there were a way to pick out uh, um, future leaders in all different fields of hemonc and medicine in general. But is there an obvious way to select for people who are going to be Uh, master clinicians are an obvious way for us to pick out who's going to be the clinical researcher of the future at the medical student or resident level. I think it's, it's, it's harder than that. And, you know, picking out that physician scientist who's going to someday run their lab is hard, but I think that's even harder. And so perhaps that's why there's no clear cut path to protect that. Um, The other thing I guess I would say is that path to become a lab-based physician scientist is so long. Um, and I think there is a recognized need to build this pool of physicians, physician scientists. And so if you're looking at um, fellowship uh, of maybe five, six years in duration, on top of the years that people have already invested and uh, med school, grad school for some, for most, uh, residency training, then yeah, we want to try and short circuit that. And this is the kind of, uh, investment that they've made, um, that, um, you know, there are opportunity costs to pursuing. Um, and so I recognize the value of, um, creating uh, a little bit more certainty in the path for this, uh, type of person who's going to become a lab-based physician scientist in a way that our, uh, clinicians uh, uh, hopefully don't have as long a path to pursue. Um, so once my goal is to get people to faculty as quickly as possible. Well, that's really well stated. And uh, I think you handled that question marvelously. Um, and I think one of the things it reminds me of is, and I was going to push this uh, idea on you and see what you think, that to me, an endangered species in medicine is someone who went straight through. You know, when I trained, uh, I, I was just telling somebody, you know, I, I was 32 when I became, uh, you know, faculty. Um, I don't see a lot of that anymore. I don't see many people who are faculty under the age of 35. And to be honest, it still is the case. Uh, I keep waiting for the year. Eventually, it'll happen. But it's still the case. There's always a fellow who's older than me. Um, and and I guess what I want to say is there's, you know, obviously, medicine is something you can find any point in your life. And it's wonderful to pursue it as a second career or something like that. That's fine. I guess one of my questions is always... 
has the arms race gotten so bad for medicine that like, you know, now take a year off after college or two years is, is the norm before you can be competitive for an MSTP. You got to have a few papers so you can even apply for an MSTP. Then the MSTP is nine years. And then you apply for fast track. Um, and, and then you got to do, you know, the perpetual postdoc. You're an instructor before you get a faculty job, et cetera. Um, and it's not uncommon that somebody literally went a, t- a type of straight through, but they just took all these years to do research. Um, and they're over 40 when they get their first job. And one of the things I think we don't discuss is who can't afford to do that. And in my mind, it's people who come from poorer backgrounds or backgrounds where you don't have sort of home stability. If you don't have access to your parents to help out for potentially childcare, if you don't have access to somebody giving you a little extra money sometimes to make ends meet, um, it's difficult to be a perpetual student till you're 40. And I wonder about who gets sort of self-selected out of this arms race. But I'm wondering, and, and so that's why I really, I'm really glad to hear you say you try to get people out through as quickly as possible. I wonder if you might talk about that a little bit. Yeah, um, such an important point. Um, and I think that's why you see such a lack of diversity in the physician scientist uh, community. Um, the people who can choose to defer, quote, real income, uh, the income of a physician for eight, nine, ten years are the people who have financial safety nets. And people who have financial safety nets are generally not uh, people uh, who start uh, lower on the socioeconomic spectrum. And so I think what you do end up seeing is more men uh, who are generally not people of color um, who are um, in that uh, in that space, which is why um, the program that is here, the uh, Diversity and Bench Sciences program is something that I hope uh, can certainly change things, and certainly there are other interventions that I hope people implement, implement to diversify the physician-scientist pool. But that point that you make uh, is more generally applicable, too. Um, and certainly, I think that uh, time course to go from a college student to practicing physician is really, really long, and it's really, really expensive. So if you think about who is in a position to take out a couple hundred thousand dollars in loans, it's not going to be somebody uh, who's um, uh, not financially secure to begin with necessarily. It might be, but I think you're going to see a, a lesser proportion of that, um, which is why it's intriguing to me to see the studies that have come out about um, the um, uh, the backgrounds, the, uh, the socioeconomic status of people who are coming into medical school, that it tends to be people who are in the upper quartile. Um, and I do think that that's problematic from a diversity perspective. And we certainly, you know, maybe we'd be better off if medical school were free for all, or at least uh, at a, a price point uh, that was accessible to people the way it is in uh, other parts of the world. Um so I think, uh, I think to answer your question, yes, yeah, sometimes added years, especially if they're invested in uh, research or so, some other uh, more typical and inve- conventional endeavor, uh, can make an application uh, seem a little bit more um, academic in, uh, in nature. But I think the same, uh, there are advantages to the, um, the other reasons that people take extra time to get uh, to the point that they're applying for fellowship. Um, We certainly value the range of life experience people have, whether it's in research or other uh, other ways. Um, And it doesn't always have to be a graduate school uh, degree or graduate degree. you know, this year we're interviewing people who have taken paths outside of medicine for many reasons um, and uh, that have nothing to do with uh, an academic pursuit. Um, and think, I think that um, it enriches our community to have people with different perspectives. Um, and those perspectives can be general life experiences that don't add up in a typical way on a CV. So I think this is a plug in general for what we're calling holistic uh, review of applications, uh, both in medical school, residency, and fellowship. Uh, that's great. Um, yeah, and I could talk to you a little bit all day about this topic probably, but uh, there's some other things I wanted to broach with you before uh, before you're going to have to see I'm a patient. I'm time. Yeah, oh, we're good. We're good, I know, yeah, before you're going to have to see a patient. Um, okay, what did I want to ask you? I want to ask you about now I'm in fellowship. And this is where um, I guess I'm very curious to hear your philosophy of 
you know, what is it that they need to master? Um, I, I always tell people that this is different than other internal medicine subfields. You do internal medicine, you finish your three years uh, and you join internal medicine, you know a lot about cardiology. Yes, you're gonna learn more, but you know a lot. You know a lot about pump critical care. You know a lot about hepatology even. What you know very, very little of is cancer. You may know cancer the way, you know, in lymphoma, your knowledge of lymphoma might just be past medical history Hodgkin's lymphoma. I mean, you may not know how we treat Hodgkin's lymphoma, early favorable, early unfavorable, advanced disease. You may not know. And it's just that first year of fellowship, I think, was the most learning I did, learning more diseases than I've ever learned, learning more treatment pathways than I've ever done, and then learning principles that I never really even thought of, which is, what does it mean to treat until progression? What is progression? Why is that the end point of studies? And why do we treat until it, but not beyond it? And why do we sometimes do treat beyond it? And uh, why do we switch therapies? How do we decide how to switch therapies? And, and when somebody has cancer and then they start to have other ailments, when do you scan them? When do you not scan them? And when do you biopsy? When don't you? And uh, it's a lot. And there are also so many cancers. I'm a cancer doctor. I don't actually don't know how many cancers there are. I think there's at least a thousand, but maybe even more. WHO has at least 200 lymphomas now. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's actually no number. They, they keep splitting. Um, and so we need the train. And so the trainee comes into this field. They got to learn all this. On top of this, they always have the the sort of the juggernaut, or so the weight on the back of their the back of them that they need to find a clearly defined focus and interest and, and research focus. And to me, that's a lot to do in three years. And so I guess my question, and, 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 then, and then I'll put my little, my little sore spot, which is it doesn't happen often, but it does happen, that there is someone who they, they decide to terminally differentiate early. And they say, I'm going to be an X doctor. And they go spend all their time focusing on X, whatever tumor type that is. And every so often, you know, I ask them a question about something else, and, and they, they're not that interested in it because they've already decided to be an X doctor. And I don't know, my heart breaks a little bit because I'm like, well, it's good to be an ex-doctor, but you need to know everything for right now. And there's a value to know everything because you'll be surprised years later how it will creep in on you. And, you know, the listeners don't know this, but you and I both work at a place where we are generalists to some degree by definition. You're a generalist hemolignancy specialist and hematologist, and I'm a generalist too. I mean, and, and um, so anyway, so... Um, Okay, how do you think about their education? Like, what do you want to teach them? How do you balance it with service? How do you balance it with work? Yeah, how do you think about it? Yeah, uh, my response to that is that no matter what you're doing, uh, perhaps in any fellowship, um, you are really just scratching the surface. Uh, our careers are long, um, and I feel like I'm learning some, maybe just as much as I was learning as a first-year fellow. It's just it's different learning. Um, it was broader learning as a fellow. It was more diseases as a fellow. Um, it was maybe a little bit more in the way of process learning. Uh, but uh, I think what I didn't appreciate when I was a first-year fellow, and I'm not sure uh, we all do, is uh, how long our careers are going to be, and that in that first year, you're really only scratching the surface. Um, so recognize that at the end of that first year, there's still going to be so much more you don't know. And it's really two types of knowledge that I think you're engaging with. You're engaging with content knowledge, um, learning about the different cancers and their staging and the management um, and uh, the literature that supports all of what we do. But you're also learning a lot of process knowledge, how you go about um, diving into the literature and critically evaluating whether it's appropriate for a particular, uh, how it applies for a particular patient. Um, how you're going to see a certain number of patients per day, um, how are you going to get through the uh, electronic medical record and click through all the things that you do um, and manage all the different tasks over the course of a day. Um, That type of process knowledge, uh, I think, um, uh, is uh, not more important, but uh, just as important to make sure, making sure that's at the end of all of this someday that you're a sustainable physician or you're in a profession where you feel like you are sustained and you are full. Um, and so uh, I, I think that um, at that end of the first year, uh, you've made significant progress in content knowledge and practice knowledge, but there's so much more to go. Um, and so that's, uh, that's my res- response to that question. As to whether um, people uh, 
terminally differentiate too early. Uh, I think that's also really hard to do too, because you can say, you know, I'm going to be a GU oncologist and the end of this three years, uh, I want to know as much as Eric Small. Well, you're not going to at the end of the three years because Eric Small's per uh, per uh, perpetually learning too. Um, uh, but uh, are you going to be further along on your path than you would be? For sure. Um, and are the skills that you're developing to be a great GU oncologist going to translate to any other potential cancer that you might choose to study in the future? Yes. Uh, so I, I hope that that process knowledge, uh, that investment that you've made to um, uh, differentiate somewhat um, is going to uh, provide a foundation for you to really take on any type of uh, cancer. Um, I guess uh, this is all true for hematology fellows too, but I guess we're focused more here on uh, oncology. Um, or I guess this is true for any subspecialty really and any field that uh, you go into. Um, I think if you focus on the skills, those skills are translatable. You can apply them to uh, any number of pursuits. No, that's well said. I always, um, you know, I always, and I'm going to ask you a little bit about the didactics and stuff, um, but I always... Um, come across fellows and they say, you know, I was on service with so-and-so. I was like, you know, how was it? And they're like, oh, you know, they're great, but um, they, they, they're not really into teaching. Mm -hmm. I was like, what do you mean by that? And they're like, oh, you know, they don't take time at the end of certain rounds to, to do a little chalk talk or something like that. And, um, and, and I definitely uh, feel the opposite because I always enjoy doing a little chalk talk, you know, okay, that's, that's, my, that's me. But, um, you know, I can understand how somebody's busy and they don't have time to do that. Um, but that's one type of learning. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an important learning. But the other type of learning that I always say that no one is ever too busy for because it's like it's like the, the most fundamental learning is every time I was a fellow and the attending said, we uh, let's do this or let's do that. I always took one second and said, oh, if you don't mind me asking, what makes you choose this over that? Or why do you do it like why, what when do you, or when would you do that? And when would you do this? Um, and and I think that's like that's learning, too. And that's like the best learning because we all have these flow charts in our mind and um you know, you're good to talk about you're always learning. I'm always learning too. I'm always changing my flow chart, but some of my flow charts are pretty like, uh, you know, I'm so anchored in my, in my biases uh -huh. and ways. Um, and I really find it fascinating when people try to explain those cut points, those, those distinctions. Um, and that to me is a way when you're a fellow, you can always be learning, even if the person doesn't feel like that they're putting a lot of time extra to teach, they can always be teaching you because there's gotta be a reason for why they're doing what they're doing. I mean, I think most people have, they have some rule of thumb, they have some logic to it. Um, and then as a faculty, what I try really hard to do, and maybe it's too much, <laughs> maybe they're gonna say it's too much, I really try to always say, not just, I think we should do this, here's why I think we should do this. And I will tell you, Gerald, there's always a couple fellows who say, oh, Dr. Prasad, that's really well put. Let me make a argument for you why we should do it this way mm -hmm. and a few of times i'm like okay you win mm -hmm. you win you that's better that's better uh, okay so thoughts on this yeah i think what the process you just described um is uh the type of learning that i think is the most meaningful uh, it's what we mean when we say that we're learning together that uh, we are encountering, encountering a clinical situation where we have questions we are going to explore in the literature um, what's known about this question. Um, we're gonna try to apply it to this patient and we're gonna have different perspectives. Your perspective is gonna potentially be different than the one that I have, but let's discuss it. Uh, let's have a, uh, let's explain our rationale for doing things a certain way. Um, and then let's see how it goes. Um, I think that sort of, pr uh, that process, uh, that doesn't feel as much like learning because it's not as traditional. We're all used to being in a classroom, being in a small group, being online and watching slides presented to us. And I think of those um, didactics or chalk talks, um, for the most part, depending on the topic, um, but uh, that's probably providing a scaffold it's a starting point on which you can hang additional knowledge. So maybe somebody's gonna walk through like, how do I think about a new case of AML? Great, you can get that any number of places. Um, it's really that second thing uh, that um, hopefully you're generating new questions, that you're uh, tackling the data on your own, that you're uh, analyzing it and interpreting it, that gets you to the higher parts of the hierarchy. Um, 
And so I think it's probably, uh, you need to have a mix of both of those things. Um, but I feel like uh, the didactics, the chalk talks, uh, those kinds of uh, scaffolds that they're providing could be provided in a number of ways. It's the in the moment, on the job, with the particular patient learning uh, that I personally feel is richer. Yeah, that's that's really well said, and I, I completely agree. And um, you know, I just give you one example of where, like, I think there's like just so many levels, and, and see what you think. You know, one is of course uh, you learn the difference between MGUS, smoldering, and myeloma. Okay, we can learn that from a book, and then you can say you can learn that we used to use CRAB criteria, but now we use the SLIM CRAB criteria. We got these criteria that are just shy of that. Okay, you can learn that, and then you can say, um, you know, because we're adding things to the diagnostic category, actually, in the absence of any other effect, we'll be improving five-year survival in both categories due to stage migrations. You can learn that kind of mm -hmm. concept. That's good. And then, what are the things that are part of Slim Crab? You could talk about that. And one of those things is extremely skewed free light chain ratio of 100 or, you know, 0.01. So, the 100 the other way around. And, okay, so then you can learn that. And then you could learn, well, why did they add that? And they added that because if you take those people with extremely deranged free light chain ratios and you follow them over time, they have a very high propensity to become myeloma, in fact, maybe even 80%. But then, I think this is the fun part, you, you ask the fellow, give me your best argument why that shouldn't be a diagnostic criteria. And then you ask yourself, give me your best argument why that should be a diagnostic criteria. And actually, I think that's, that's where like, you're really getting into oncology because it is a choice, you know, should that have been. And I think that's a nice one because you could, I think you could argue that one both ways. And I have, you know, and I actually think maybe I think I should, to be honest with you, Gerald, I'll be honest with you. I think it shouldn't be. And if I had somebody with extremely deranged free by chain ratio, everything else is fine and they're IgG, you know, and they're okay with being watched. And I mm -hmm. know I can watch them closely. I watch them closely, you know, so I disagree with the International Myeloma Working Group on that. And we published something on that in blood. Um, so that kind of goes to your point about the, the layers and layers and how, and then even, you know, of course, there's even more that I'm not even thinking about that I don't know about how genomics may interact with the light chain ratio and, and the trajectory of light chain might be important. Um, your thoughts on this? Like yeah, you, and all yeah. the other factors that you consider yes, um, okay, for on. why you may make a decision that um, on paper you maybe shouldn't, uh, but because you're factoring in patient preferences, logistics, uh, the overall medical condition of somebody, you may choose to do something uh, that um, isn't, isn't, quote, on path or by, by the textbook. My last question for you, because your time is going to be up, but it's about their future. Okay, so we've covered nicely, I think, most of the journey. Um, but the few, I think the toughest thing, I mean, the hardest thing about being a fellow is, is, is it's also the best thing. It's the last of your training, but, you know, it's, it's also, that's, that's, then the next thing is the real life and the job. And um, not that you weren't in real life, but that it's, you know, it's a different type of thing. Um, and they have to decide what they're going to do. And I think, it's, I think it's the hardest, it's the existential question. And it's probably why people love you so much, because you're so great to talk to about, you know. I, you know, I would like to talk to you about, you know, my future too. No, you know, I can, I can tell that about you. Um, but I guess I'm curious, you know, I always tell people that, um, that the hardest part of that journey is to really be in a room by yourself and be honest with yourself as to like what you actually like. And I think all of us in medicine, so much of us, I feel like we're like the, um, the piece on the, on the Ouija board and everyone's got their hand on it, moving us like societal expectations, your parents' expectations, what other people may think, or, you know, what you're supposed to do, what's the right answer, what your friends will think. And it's hard to think like, what, what, what do you actually want to do? Do you really want to be, um, you know, half day clinic running lab and then writing those grants knowing that the downside is that that's uh, that's the hardest, that's one of the hardest things there is in the world. Um, do you really want to be um, two days a week, one disease type, but then meeting a lot with companies to try to get all the all the uh, IITs and 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 pharma sponsored studies running. Do you want to work at a under an, a relatively underserved place like a VA or an underserved place like the General? Do you want to work at a Kaiser? Do you want to be in private practice? Um, what do you really want? Um, so I'm curious how you walk them through that self reflection, um, and then once having made the decision, how you walk them through the practical steps of how do we get from A to B. Yeah. In making that first decision, uh, I say to people that this is another point in time and that the the decision isn't irreversible. Um, so in the same way that you have to reflect about uh, what your own priorities are uh, when you're putting together that personal statement for the first time, uh, you want to be doing that at the end of fellowship too, like being honest with uh, what kind of work really appeals to you, uh, what you think uh, you're going to want to do uh, 10, 15, 20 years from now. Um, 
and bringing a, a certain level of honest reflection to it to make sure that you're pursuing a path that is consistent with how you want to live, um, I think hopefully uh, uh, sets you on the best path. The other thing I would say is that um, there are so many paths uh, to gratifying careers in medicine. I think that's what we all love about it uh, is that um, I can envision myself having done so many different things and still fundamentally really enjoying what I'm doing. Um, and so there's no one path to assured happiness. Um, there are so many ways to get there. Um, and then I think because that all our decisions are irreversible, um, your career is supposed to evolve. It's supposed to change over time. Uh, you should um, feel agency uh, to change course if things aren't feeling right for you five, maybe even one, two years down the road. Um, so don't approach this as though it's the be all end all and there's no turning back. Um, so I guess that's what I'd say about uh, uh, that, uh, that first decision. Um, and then I guess um, really projecting for uh, what you think will um, keep you thriving uh, is, a, a, is really important that that future piece is so key, especially now that we're seeing so many uh, physicians feel burnt out. Um, like what's going to be sustainable for you um, and make sure that you're, you're uh, not uh, getting into a situation where um, you're going to end up toxic someday. And that's really, that's such great advice. And um, it, it really resonates in so many levels because I'll have to, when I applied on the job market, the first time in 2014, one of the people I interviewed with and said, I want you to take time and send me a two page five-year plan. I said, what's, what's a, what is this? What's a five-year plan? I was like, I'm getting homework. <laughs> I was like, uh -huh. But a five-year plan is you got to say in five years, when I look back, what do I want to have accomplished and all the domains from research to clinical to this, that, and I did it. And I, you know, did it on, you know, it was obviously it's a chore to do. And I was like, kind of, you know, like, oh, why am I doing this? But then I'll tell you that that document has been so great for me because now I'm uh -huh. eight, you know, seven, eight years out, actually eight years, nine years out um, from when I wrote that because it was a little earlier. Um, and uh, I look back on it and I was like, oh, who is this young, young whippersnapper? You know, like in some domains, um, I realized that. You know, I, I didn't really want to do that. And other domains out, far outperformed what I said I was going to do. And mm -hmm. things that I'm doing now were unthinkable, weren't even on the horizon. And um, so I really echo everything you said about being willing to change and, and look and, and, and readjust. And I also think, and tell me what you think of this, and I tell people this, but they don't believe me, um, that they always ask, you know, well, how did you end up doing what you're doing now? And how did you get this job? And how did you fall into it? And, but on the inside, to me, I feel like I feel like um, uh, I'm a balloon in the wind. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel like you make it seem like I've planned all this, but I didn't. I'm just go I'm just going whichever way the wind blows. And all my only principles are: I'm only going to do it if I'm really interested, like you. Mm -hmm. I'm only going to do it if I lose myself in it. And when I do lose myself in it, I don't want to just do it 50%. I want to do it 150%. And and when I talk about something, I like really really want to know it. And I just keep doing those three things. And then everything else is like just blowing in the wind. You know, did you think you're going to do this? No, I didn't. I, it's just, and, and where do I plan on going? It's whatever way the wind blows. Yeah, I totally agree. This is where I'm at right now. That's where I'm at right and now. Yeah. I think I'm going to be somewhere different in 10 years. Um, and I want to be somewhere different in 10 years. Gerald Sue, thank you so much. Um, this has been a lovely discussion. And um, I think people who are thinking about Hemong Fellowship should know that uh, you know, this is the kind of thoughtful program director you're going to get when you, if you, if you apply to University of California, San Francisco, and um, and uh, I think there's a reason why all the fellows love you, and, and it comes across here. Thank you so much for doing this. Thanks, Manai. That was fun.